So his understanding history, especially recent history, is always very important. It's important to know who we are. It's important to know who we got here. It's important to understand um, our history. However, there are some stories in history that studying them, understanding them, helps crystallize um, exactly what went wrong and exactly how to fix our current situation. And I think our topic for today is one of those instances in which um, it's a topic that really will help crystallize what we've, um, what has gone wrong with our Jewish community today and perhaps some ways that we are able to fix it. And it's not well known, it's not well understood, um, but I think we can um, it's very, very fascinating, the story of modern Jewish fragmentation. So, historically, Jews in the land of Israel were always united in a single Jewish community. Um, sometimes we were in control, sometimes we were not in control, subject for a different topic. Once we left Israel, once we were sent to exile... Generally, Jews throughout exile were always organized in Jewish communities, or the Hebrew term for it is the Kehillah. In Babylon, our first exile, we had a very, very strong Jewish autonomous community, which we've spoken about in some previous classes in brief. We had a very strong Jewish autonomous community in Babylon um, that... Um, really had its own autonomy, very, very well organized. Many of, most other places that Jews lived, we organized ourselves into Jewish communities. Um, the Jewish communities varied depending on time and place. They varied from place to place. Each community was different. Um, the powers of the community, the authority of the community, really depended on each time and each place really varied. Now we did, as Jews, we're always very good at fighting. Infighting was always central to Jewish history. In every place, wherever we were, we always fought. And many Kehillahs had some very, very vicious long fights. There was a more than 50-year battle in the city of Vilna in the 18th century um, that really destroyed the Jewish community. There was... Vilna, there was a long battle. There was a long battle in the 18th century in the city of um, Hamburg that um, split much of German Jewry. There were many, many different fights in, within Jewish communities. However, the Jewish communities never split. The community remained united, but there were factions and there were fight there was fighting within communities and this was very common we never actually split because we needed to stand united against our non-jewish neighbors who were always looking for ways to harass us and harm us and tax us and get our money and so we the fighting was always within ourselves sometimes we involved the non-jews in the fighting and then it got really ugly but we always retained our sense of organized communities. 
There were some communities, and this was fairly rare, that were split between their origins of how they got to that place, particularly Sephardic and Ashkenazic, um, communities like in Holland and later in Israel, where there were independent Sephardic community and independent Ashkenazic community. So two official Jewish communities, but that was very rare. Generally, Jewish communities were very well organized, very united. Now, there were occasionally in Jewish history groups that rejected traditional Judaism and essentially created their own religion separated from the community. They were no longer part of the Jewish community. They created their own, but they were no longer considered Jewish. Examples, an early example was Christianity that essentially became its own religion, not Jews anymore. There was a group that didn't really go to non were descendants of Jews called Karaites, that began in the um, 9th century, in, began in um, Babylonia, in Mesopotamia, and then spread around the Middle East. But again, they were a separate group, essentially a separate religion from Judaism. Later in the 17th century, there was a um, religion that began in Turkey called the Donme. They're still around today. Um, also from Jews, break off, they believed in a Jewish Messiah called Shabtai Tzvi. So there were these breakoffs from the Jewish community, but never that the Jewish community itself split. Now, in 19th century Europe... What does that mean, then? Because you have also the Sadducees. I mean, what does splitting mean? Sadducees, the splits were religious, not community structure. It was in Israel. It was very different. I'm not going to get now into the specifics of the differences. So in, the 19, in 19th century Europe... Jewish communities at this time controlled all religious activity in every single town was in the hands of the united Jewish community. In every city, every town, often it went by region. In other words, there would be a city that would control the entire region, all the towns and villages around. Um, but there were united Jewish communities that controlled all religious activity, including schooling, synagogues, religious services like um, circumcision, ritual slaughter, um, mikvahs. They controlled everything. They also controlled family laws, marriage, divorce, custody issues. They also, to some extent, controlled inter-Jewish business and even business between Jews and non-Jews. And the Kahilas in 19th century Europe were very, very powerful. They also had taxation powers in Every country in Europe, just about the government invested in the Jewish communities, special taxation powers. They were able to tax um, in different forms, tax their local Jewish community. Now, the governments in each country in Europe recognized Jewish communal power though they often mixed into the Jewish communities and told the Jewish communities what they had to do, but they recognized the authority of the Jewish community and they allowed the Jewish community to assert its authority. So every Jew was part of the Jewish community and had to follow the dictates of the Jewish community, both religiously and family law. They had to pay taxes to the Jewish community. They had no choice. The only way out was to leave the Jewish community, which meant in the 18th century, convert to Christianity. That was the only other option. So, 
Governments, so this was a, so there was a very united Jewish community. They were not national communities. There was no such thing as a chief rabbi of any country or a central community in any country. They were not <coughs> national communities. They were city-based, town-based communities or regional communities. There had been, um, until the 17th century, a national community for Jews of the larger Poland and Lithuania, which included much of Eastern Europe back then, but that had been disbanded in the 17th century or early 18th century, and there was no national community, just individualized community that had very strong authority over every Jew's life. They could tax them, they had authority over their religious life, over education, over just about everything. And these communities were government-recognized, government-sanctioned, that had very unique powers, we don't have anything like that today. So we just, it's important to appreciate what they, what they had, how the communities were structured. So now, in the late 18th century, there was a movement that began in northern Germany called Haskala, which essentially translates as enlightenment and was a copy of the 16th century Protestant-based enlightenment, which very much influenced our country and our independence, was built on enlightenment principles. Um, so there was a Jewish enlightenment movement that began in the 18th century. century. Originally, it was called Haskalah. Later, it became known as Reformation, um, a copy of Christian Reformation. The original ideal of the early Maskilim, Moses Mendelssohn, is often referred to as the father of Haskalah in the um, late 18th century, is the late 1700s. Um, the original idea was to encourage Jews who were then very distinct from Christian Germans, to encourage Jews to be much more like their Christian neighbors. The idea is that the differences between Jews and Christians should only be religious and not cultural, but they should integrate cultural, culturally into German life. And the idea is that they should be, there should be German Christians and German Christ, and, and uh, sorry, German Christians and German Jews, or what they would call Jews of Mosaic faith. So it should not be a culture or a people. We should just be a religion, but German like everyone else. So reformers tried to move, remove cultural differences between Jewish and Christian cultures. Originally, they, tried, they changed the language. The spoken language of Jews in all of Europe at that time was, was Yiddish. They changed the language. Jews should start speaking German, just like the Germans do. They should stop wearing distinct Jewish clothing. Dress German. They then went further. They changed Jewish worship style to more closely represent Christian worship. Bring in songs to the prayer, bring in a sermon, have the rabbis and cantors wear special garb like in the churches. So they tried to build synagogues that looked with pews that looked more like churches, build large synagogues like the large churches instead of the small synagogues that they had previously. So to try to create Judaism to make it more reflect what they saw Christianity, uh, Protestant Christianity in northern Germany. With time, 
the Haskala as it evolved into reformation in the by mid uh, in the early 19th century moved to actually change Judaism and Jewish religion to be more Christian like um, with ideals including doing away with Shabbos because celebrating Shabbos on a different day means that our day of rest is totally different culturally that changes that makes us different so move Shabbos to Sunday um, get rid of kosher dietary laws because that means you can't eat with your non-Jewish neighbors and anything that separated us culturally from German Christians. So this reform movement um, by mid-19th century um, pushed Jews away from Jewish practice, traditional Jewish practice, to become more Christian-like. So even though they were still Jewish, they didn't convert to Christianity, there was no such thing then as being nothing. You were either Jewish or Christian. So although they didn't convert to Christianity, many Jews by mid-19th century in Germany no longer were practicing much of Jewish faith. Many synagogues were, had brought in innovations that were no longer in line with Jewish traditions or with Jewish practice. This movement gradually spread to, from Germany to the Austrian Empire. A little history, general history of the 19th century. In the 19th century, um, the um, Eastern Europe was essentially split between Prussia, which later became, late 19th century, became the German Empire, um, and the, Austri- uh, the Austrian Empire, which was covered most of Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and the Russian Empire, which covered much of Eastern Europe. So that was, and there was nothing else. All those other little countries today that exist in Eastern Europe didn't exist with the exception of Romania. None of the other countries existed. So so this reform move gradually spreads the Austrian Empire and has a much greater impact on the western parts of the Austrian Empire where German was the spoken language, namely Austria and Czech, where in Prague, German was the main language at the time, um, and Bohemia was called then, and it was less influential in the eastern parts, which were Hungary, Slovakia, um, what today is southern Poland or Galicia, and those areas. So, in 1867, by 1867, a significant minority, but a minority, of Austrian Empire Jews were no longer keeping most commandments. Again, most of them were in the western part, the German-speaking part, but there was a minority even in the eastern parts of the, uh, of the, uh, of the Austrian Empire, mostly in Hungary, that were, um, had now become reformers or enlightenment um, the German word that they used for enlightenment then was neolog. So, in 1867, Hungary, there had been a um, re- Hungarian rebellion in 1848, which was a year of rebellions all across Europe, a year of civil war. And in 1867, after losing a war against Prussia, Austria... This, the Austrian Empire decides to, uh, wants to cement its hold on its vast lands and many, many different peoples. And to do that, they create a dual monarchy. The dual monarchy created the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, essentially creating, splitting the Austrian Empire into two countries. The Austrian 
Empire and the Kingdom of Hungary. Two independent countries, independent parliaments, independent prime ministers, though with a single king, with a single emperor, Franz Joseph II, who lasted all the way through to World War I. He was Austrian. And, sorry? He was Austrian. The Austrian-Hungarian Empire. He was emperor of both. But he was and the Austrian. He, was he, was, he lived in Vienna, yeah. And, <laughs> and they had a single military. It was two countries for all internal issues, but externally acted as a single country. The new Hungarian government now, based in, based in what was then called Pest, now Budapest, um, the new Hungarian government um, wanted to organize all of Hungary. Now, along with the creation of the dual monarchy, the Austrians also gave full equal rights to all citizens of the Austrian and Hungarian Empire. All had full equal rights, which included emancipation of Jews. So, for the first time, at least in Central Europe, Jews were now totally emancipated, totally free, equal citizens in the Austrian and Hungarian Empire. Which was... They hadn't had that before. So, the Hungarian government, there are some half a million Jews living in the kingdom of Hungary. The Hungarian government wants the more than 150 official recognized Jewish communities of Hungary to, to organize into a single unit. So on December 14th, 1868, 220 delegates from across Hungary meet in Pest, for the first Hungarian Jewish Congress, the goal is to create a central Jewish government that will govern all of the Hungarian Jewish communities within the new, newly created Kingdom of Hungary. Now, at the time, within many of the Kehilas, most of most Kehilas, with the exception of a few, such as Budapest, most Kehilas were at the time. Um, uh, were at the time still very traditional and controlled by Jewish traditionalists in line with Jewish law. Although in many larger cities, there were, there were groups of neologues, enlightened Jews, Jews who had adopted reformist values from Germany and who had um, stopped keeping many of the commandments or even observing a more uh, reformed version of Judaism. They had a complex system of elections. When they got to the, when the Congress opened, what they found was a majority of delegates to the Congress were associated with the neologue Jews, with the enlightened Jews, representing a small minority of Hungarian Jewry, but they were a majority of delegates in the Congress. So essentially what happened very quickly was it became clear that the Congress was going to reach decisions that were going to uh, push the agenda of reforming Judaism. The traditionalist delegates were very upset about this. And as the Congress progressed over the next couple weeks, um, the fights within the Congress became bigger and bigger. There were more and more debates and arguments breaking out daily 
in the um, plenum and in the debates within the Congress. Many traditional traditionalist delegates led by Rabbi Moshe Shik. Rabbi Moshe Shik at the time was the most respected rabbi in Hungary. He was the rabbi in a city in north eastern Hungary called Chust. And led by Rabbi Moshe Shik, they wanted to just walk out. They felt the Congress was going to lead to decisions and lead to major changes in the structure of the Jewish community that would go against Jewish traditions and would not follow the will of majority of Hungarian Jewry. They wanted to just walk out of the Congress. There were other Jews, there were other delegates led by another rabbi called Rabbi Azriel Hildesheimer, who was a rabbi in Eisenstadt, which is now part of Austria. And they felt that they could negotiate um, and with the, if they could negotiate and they could manage to convince the delegates to come up with reasonable compromise that would make everybody happy. Anyway, after weeks of arguing, in the end, remember this is a Congress that's sanctioned by the government. So it's an official government-recognized Congress. At the end of the Congress... Um, Decisions were taken that made many of the traditionalist delegates unhappy. Dozens of traditionalist delegates walked out of the Congress. And they believed it had been manipulated by reformers who are now going to use their new power to force Jewish reformation in Hungary. Remember, the Jewish kahila had power over all of religious life in Germany, in, in Hungary. So the delegates walk out. But there were decisions taken at the Congress that were recognized by the government that they're upset about. So they went straight from Pest to Vienna, accompanied by many other major Jewish leaders. They went to the emperor, Franz Joseph II, who was ultimately the, um, who was ultimately still the emperor and had absolute control. And they asked, they petitioned him to allow the community to separate. And in 1870, the petition was granted, and Hungarian Jewry was now officially split into three different groups. The delegates in the Congress or every community had the choice. They could choose to be one or part of three different groups. They could either be a group called Orthodox. The Orthodox group um, was essentially the traditionalists that included about two-thirds of Hungarian Jews joined the Orthodox community in Hungary. And Jews had to choose which community they'll join, who had authority over their religious life, and who they're going to pay their taxes to. You couldn't be part of nothing. You had to be part of something. So about two-thirds joined an Orthodox group. A little less than a third joined another group called Neologues, the Enlightened. And then the rest of them, about 5% or so, didn't want to take sides. And they became known as the status quo. They didn't want to take a side either way. So now there were three traditional communities that still exist in Hungary, all three of them. There were three traditional, there were three communities now in Hungary, three different religions, recognized religions by the Hungarian government. Orthodox Jews, Neolog Jews, and status quo Jews. Jews that don't want to take sides. 
So for now, now for the first time in Jewish in Jewish history, no longer are Jewish communities united in every town in a single community. For the first time in Jewish community, there are officially two or sometimes three Jewish communities in each city living side by side, but totally separate. Totally separate. Separate schools, separate synagogues, separate tax collection, separate everything. Every Jewish family chose which Jewish religion they wanted to register with. Three totally separate groups. Later they allowed for other groups to open as well. Same thing here. The Hungarian Jewish community has now split, split into multiple groups, led by, as we said, Rabbi Moshe Shik. There were some rabbis that were strongly against this idea, particularly Rabbi Azriel Hildesheimer in Hungary, who was very upset about the idea of splitting Jews into multiple communities. Many Hungarian Jewish Jews love the idea of splitting, no longer having to fight, you go your way, we go our way, we no longer have to fight with each other. And they wanted to export this movement of Jewish schism, they wanted to export it to other countries as well. One prominent supporter of this schism was Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch was the rabbi of the traditionalist community in Frankfurt. Frankfurt was, had a united Jewish community with multiple rabbis. It was at this point in control, the leaders of the community were mostly reformers. There were many Jewish traditionalists that were minority. Rabbi Hirsch was the rabbi of the traditionalist community. And he was the most pr- pr- prominent traditionalist rabbi in Germany in his day. He had actively campaigned for the schism, for the split in Hungarian Jewry. And now he embarked on a campaign to export it to Germany, or what then was called the Prussian Empire. So um, he actually disliked the name Orthodox. He thought that was a bad name because it sounded like Orthodox Christians. He actually preferred the name Haredim or Yureim which means God-fearing, which was always a traditional Jewish term used for Jews that follow Jewish laws. So he preferred that name. So in 1876, he lobbied the Russian parliament uh, through a Jewish parliamentarian to allow, and the the Prussian parliament passed a law that allowed any any Jewish group that wanted to split from the main Jewish community and create their own official community. Rabbi Hildesheimer, who had strongly opposed the split in Hungary, had by now, this is only... This is only six years later, but he had, at this point, he had been appointed as a rabbi in Berlin, and he had become, been appointed as, as uh, he had begun the famous Berlin Seminary, which was the most prestigious um, traditionalist um, yeshiva in Germany. And Rabbi Hildesheimer, as he had back then in Hungary strongly opposed the um, Jews splitting from the central Jewish community. And though Rabbi Hirsch for the rest of his life campaigned 
for traditionalist Jews to separate and create their own independent communities with their own organized communal structure, recognized by the German government. Till today in Germany, every Jew has to pay Jewish tax. And Christians pay Christian tax. You pay tax to your religious group. You're registered with an official religion or no religion, and you have to pay taxes. There's religious taxes still today in Germany. So he advocated that they separate into an official, legal, separate community. It never took on. Jews in Germany refused to separate from the official community, and they continued living as they had within a single community, split perhaps over religious values, split over all sorts of other political issues. They fought each other, as Jews were always very good at doing. They battled each other. But nevertheless, German Jewish communities remained united and still till today remain united. Every town has a single Jewish community. There's a unified Jewish community for all of Germany. It's very centralized, very well organized, government sanctioned. It always remained centralized. Moving eastward... In the Russian Empire, reformers had very little influence. They were fairly small, mostly in big cities like Odessa, Vilna. They were fairly small, though. Um, Some Jewish leaders thought that after the split in Hungary, they thought that in Russia we should also split. Now, unlike in Hungary, where the neologues had been a significant minority, and were able to really make a significant impact. Here, the idea was in Russia also, there were organized Jewish communities recognized by the Russian government, um, each one independent in each town and city. And the idea was to kick all the reformers out of the Jewish community, expel them from the Jewish community. And at the time, the most, <coughs> the most um, respected rabbi at the time, or renowned rabbi at the time, in the Russian Empire, was Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan Specter. This is the um, second half of the 19th century. He was the rabbi of Kovno um, Yeshiva University. Yeshiva Yitzchak Elchanan is its official name in New York, is named after him. So Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan was emphatic that Jews don't split. Splits are bad for Jews, bad for Judaism, you disagree, you figure it out. You fight, you argue, we don't split. So the Hungarian split that had split the Hungarian Jewish community into Orthodox, Neolox, and, um, and status quo did not manage to, was not exported anywhere else in the, um, anywhere else on the European continent, um, although despite attempts to try to export this concept of splitting Jews into different official religions. Now, while it didn't work in Europe, a weak imitation of it was attempted, what they call across the pond here in the United States. (laughs) Judaism in the United States has always been very unique. And here's why. In the First Amendment in the Constitution, back from the early days of our country, the government was forbidden from endorsing any religion. 
Now, this is very unique and remains unique today in the United States. It is one of the few countries in the world in which the government is forbidden from endorsing any religion. That's very different from freedom of religion, right? Freedom of religion means anyone can practice religion, but the government can aid people in the practice of religion. In this country, the government cannot help anyone in the practice of their religion, which means that religious communities have no government recognition, no government authority, no ability to, connect, to collect taxes, no ability to, afford, to enforce laws. They have no authority in this country whatsoever. They never did. And this was very, very unique. In every country in Europe, till today, religious organi- communities do have legal authority, do have legal status. So, here in this country... Religious authorities had no legal status whatsoever, which meant that every religious community in this country is not a government, as it was in Europe, it was effectively a form of government. Every religious community in this country is simply a free association. And so Jewish communities... um, in the traditional sense of the word, with an organized communal structure, a sense of communal government, where everyone had to be either Jewish or... If you weren't Jewish, you were Christian. You had to be part of a community legally. Never existed in this country and does not exist today. The closest we created to that were free associations. So we created free associations generally around synagogues, although we also, not as popular today as it was in the 19th century, we also, many Jews, created free associations around fraternities. There were many Jewish fraternities. Most famous is B'nai B'rith, um, the most famous Jewish fraternity, but there were many of them. Essentially clubs. doesn't have to be synagogue center. Jewish associations, Jewish clubs. So, And Christians essentially did the same thing. They were all free associations. Nobody had to be part of anything. You could move around at will. Any Jew had the freedom to leave one synagogue, join the next. You could break off from one synagogue, join the next synagogue. There was actually, in the early days of the country, there was a case, um, I think it was in South Carolina, where a synagogue split off and they tried suing them for splitting off. And you can't. They lost because you can't stop a synagogue. You can make, open as many synagogues as you like. It's just free association. It has no government... Um, recognition whatsoever. So Jews could join, leave one synagogue, join the next synagogue, join, a, join multiple. You could do whatever you want, right? You could join a church and a synagogue. There's no, you could do whatever you want in this country if they let you, right? It's all. It's it's they a matter of. Know. It's a matter of free. It's a matter of free association. So we never this this country never had a recognized or organized Jewish community in the classical sense of the term never existed. There was no official Judaism in this country at any point. Still does not exist today. The most that we had were synagogue associations. Synagogue organizations. Now, the early Jews that came to the United States um, in the 19th century were mostly German Jews, along with German Protestants that came, and some German Catholics that came, and Dutch. (laughs) Large numbers of German Jews came to the United States as well. The same debates that they had between traditionalists and reformists in Germany transplanted here to the United States. 
in and the synagogues and rabbis debated whether they should stay loyal to Jewish traditions, whether they should reform Jewish traditions, and it was debated here as fiercely as it was in Germany, only that in Germany it was debated within the structure of a community that had real power and had to make real decisions. Here, you did whatever you wanted. In 1873, an attempt was made to unite dozens of American congregations across the country, um, led by a rabbi called Isaac Mayer Weiss, who was a reformer rabbi in Cincinnati. And he, based in Cincinnati, was a rabbi of the Plum Street Synagogue there. And he created what he called the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, bringing together, trying to create essentially a united, freely, because there's no government power, but a united Jewish community of the United States. He didn't get all synagogues, but he got most synagogues in the United States, joined his um, Union of American Hebrew Congregations. Together... One problem that they had in the 19th century was there were no schools for higher learning, no yeshivas in America, so all rabbis had to be imported from Europe. And so together the communities created what they called the Hebrew Union College, which was essentially a Jewish seminary or yeshiva for higher Jewish learning to train rabbis in, based in Cincinnati. However, it quickly became clear that despite Rabbi Weiss's reassurances that, the, that he was trying to unite Judaism and they would try to work together under a single umbrella as Jews in Germany were doing, it quickly became clear that Rabbi Weiss was actually trying to spread reformed Judaism and trying to reform existing Jewish communities. And the... Um, the uh, classical, though the moment um, that really drove this home was in 1883 when the first class of Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, um, uh, uh, when they graduated or they were ordained, and in this first class there was a big banquet to celebrate it, and at the banquet they served shrimp. And it became known as the Trefer Banquet. And... You could Google the Trefer Banquet. And after this Trefer, the Trefer Banquet, at the Trefer, well, as soon as it became clear that there was shrimp on the menu and that the, cater, the, the dinner was not going to be kosher in any way, um, traditionalist members of the Union of, he, of American Hebrew Congregations um, walked out because they had understood that it was going to be a united group that was going to try to appreciate everybody's sensibilities, which presumably at every central event would be kosher then. And here, and they had agreed upon that they would be kosher. Here, it had, um, rather than being kosher, it had been a trefer banquet. They walked out, and as a result, many traditionalist communities walked away or left the um, union of Hebrew congregations. Later, another yeshiva was, began, uh, was started, another place to, for higher Jewish learning was started in New York in 1887 called the Jewish Theological Seminary, Seminary often known as JTS. Um, so there was still this union of Hebrew congregations, which essentially was a union now of reformed Jewish congregations across the United States, 
most, or, um, no, there were no traditionalist congregations or even semi-traditionalist congregations that associated with them at all once it became clear that it was simply focused on reforming Judaism. Um, there was no centralized Judaism, no central government to work in to start with, so it was just a matter of free association, and nobody wanted to do free, free, asso- freely associate with someone who was trying to impose their will on them. Um, eventually, in 1899, a handful of traditional synagogues band together and create an organization called the Orthodox Union, taking their name from the Orthodox community in Hungary. They called themselves the Orthodox Union. Generally, they were called conservatives as opposed to reform. They were the reformed Jews, conservative Jews, but they took the official name. They called themselves Orthodox Union. Um, they Now, in 19... Um, now, in... Eight, uh, in They were they there was there were many different Jewish communities. There was a reform group of reformed Jewish communities, another non-traditional Judea, that were practicing a, non, a reformed version of Judaism that were united under the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, starting in 1873. By 1883, they were just reformed congregations, and um, there were then many Jews that were traditionalists and non-traditionalists. They often used the terms conservative, traditionalist or reformed, non-traditionalists. The conservative, a number of conservative synagogues, not everyone, but a number of them banded together in 1899 to create the Orthodox Union. This is what happened. I'm telling you a story. Listen to my story. So, So in 1899, they banded together and they created the Orthodox Union. However, the Orthodox Union... Um, for many, by in the early 1890s, there was already in the 1880s, but especially in the 1890s, the, um, Russian, the Russian Empire had opened its doors, allowed Jews to leave, and Jews by the hundreds of thousands were leaving, mostly for the United States. And the Jewish community of the United States swelled um, many, many times over in the 1890s and early 1900s with mostly Russian Jews. Many of the Jews that many of the Jews that came from Russia built Jewish communities, brought rabbis over. Many of the rabbis were uncomfortable with the Americanized, English-speaking, Orthodox Union synagogues. They wanted a more traditionalist, Yiddish-speaking network of synagogues. So they created a new network, not of synagogues, but this was a network of rabbis in 1902 called Agudath Harabanim, or the Organization of Orthodox Rabbis. Of Orthodox what? Rabbis. Union of Orthodox Rabbis, the official name. And they were more, I wouldn't say more religious, but more, um, less Americanized, more Yiddish focused, more Jew- culturally Jewish. They, um, they, had, they associated with a school that had recently been opened, um, by Russian Jews that had come in 1897, called Yeshivas Yitzchak Elchanan, as we mentioned, named after Rabbi Yitzchak Elchanan Specter from Kovno, and um, they connected with that yeshiva. Soon, however, another rift opened up 
between in 1902, the Jewish Theological Seminary, which was the first traditionalist Jewish school of higher learning, hired Solomon Schechter, who was a professor of Jewish studies at Cambridge, and brought him over to lead the Jewish Theological Seminary. However, Solomon Schechter believed in a critical study of Judaism. In other words, he believed in questioning Jewish um, Jews, biblical criticism, questioning other, uh, uh, questioning the Talmud, and questioning the authority of parts of Judaism as a form of study, and he introduced it to the Jewish Theological Seminary. Many traditionalist Jews were very upset about that. And so as a result, the, um, as a result, with time, the Orthodox Union, which was mostly traditionalist Jewish synagogues, moved away from the Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, with time, students of Solomon, Rabbi Solomon Schechter, who, um, were, who were not comfortable with the Orthodox Union as they became rab- graduated and became rabbis, they created a organization, a union for their own synagogues outside of the Orthodox Union, which they called the United Synagogues. So by now, there were multiple different unions of synagogues, all essentially free associations. Every synagogue is a free association of Jews. Jews could be part of it, could pay membership, could not pay membership. Uh, Many synagogues, uh, well, most synagogues in this country did and still do charge membership, have membership fees. There were always, and there are even more today, many synagogues that don't even have membership, many Jews who didn't, were not members, but these were different structured, um, different um, synagogue unions that were built. Today, 21st century, there is still no organized official American Jewish community, though many have called to make it. It is impossible to make. There is no organized uh, uh, Protestant community. There is no organized American Christian community in any, or Muslim community or any other religion because religions in the, this country are not government sanctioned but simply free associations. So there has never been an organized American Jewish community. It is just a patchwork of synagogues, synagogue organizations, and all sorts of other independent organizations, federations, Jewish community centers, and all sorts of other Jewish communities. Fraternities, which were very popular in the 19th and early 20th century, are no longer popular. There still are a handful of them. Um, But there's a very long list today of Jewish organizations. Majority of Jews today in the United States, as in really much of the world, no longer practice most Jewish traditions. Even more so, most Jews today in the United States no longer have a solid Jewish education or a solid knowledge of Judaism. Solid knowledge even of basics of Judaism. Today, about a third of American Jews are connected to a synagogue, uh, are members in a synagogue. uh, Sorry, about... um, Two-thirds of American Jews are connected to a synagogue in one way or another, but most Jews in this country, uh, more than half, don't have official membership in any synagogue. There are today three very large synagogue unions with due-paying members. There's a union of Reform Judaism, um, which has about um, 
800 and something synagogues, these United Synagogues of Conservative Judaism, which has another four or 500 synagogues. There's the Orthodox Union, which has another close to 1,000 synagogues. Together they represent about 2,500 different congregations. Um, and some uh, a little under 40% of Jewish adults um, have affiliations with a synagogue that is somehow connected with one of those groups. Their numbers, though, are dwindling, are shrinking fast. There are many other independent synagogues, not part of those organizations, part of different unions, um, totally independent synagogues that have membership. There are also many Jewish organizations that don't have membership. Chabad, which is an organization that we are part of, um, has over a thousand centers across the United States, which are essentially community centers, but most have synagogues associated as part of the community center, and they have no membership. Um, Chabad reaches today over a million Jews in this country, more than 20% of American Jewry are connected in one way or another with Chabad. There is, of course, a lot of overlap between synagogues as well. So today, the picture of American Jewry remains not, no longer united, divided. Uh, it was never united. It remains as complicated as it always was. Um, and it hasn't, its overall picture hasn't really changed. There was never an organized, centralized American Jewish community. There still isn't today. There were always free associations of synagogues. There are today many free associations of synagogues. Some of those free associations, and most of those free associations have different views of Judaism, different beliefs of how Judaism should be practiced, variations. Um, some are extremely similar to others. There are many synagogues. There, are, there is much membership. Um, as a result, uh, most Jews in reality in this country, paying members of specific synagogues, non-paying members, don't know much or care much for the variances of Jewish theological differences, uh, but are simply wherever, go where it's convenient, where they're comfortable, um, or involved wherever it is. So there isn't that much, well, organizational, organizationally in this country, there is a lot of complexity um, in the actual community. In reality, it's simply um, most Jews don't know and don't care. Yes? When I was growing up in the 50s, the only, th the only way we really proved that we were Jewish was by a total hatred of Jesus. If that was the key thing to being, Jew to being uh, Jewish, and that's all we cared about, and no one cared about synagogues, kosher, or any of that, now there is a common myth. There's a common myth that you hear again and again. Um, how how this began, I don't know. That there are three official branches of Judaism in the United States: conservative, orthodox, and reform. Sometimes you say four with reconstructionists. Um, in reality, it's technically incorrect. Um, there aren't any official branches of Judaism because there is no official Judaism in this country at all. There are no official branches of Judaism in this country. The only place where there were official branches of Judaism and still are today is in Hungary. There were no official branches and there are no official branches of Judaism. In reality, we're a single Jewish people that has always been 
and continues to be in the United States, uniquely decentralized. And this is unique. It doesn't exist in any other country. Unique to the United States. We are a very decentralized community um, with many differences in belief, many differences in practice. Most Jews, though, as we said, care little for the differences and don't know much about Judaism and don't really care much about the differences and are simply trying to get involved wherever it is. In hindsight... That's our history story. Now a little of my own opinion. In hindsight, the Hungarian split of 1870, um, in hindsight, from a Jewish, um, from a historical perspective, I believe was a big mistake. It was a big mistake. It failed to to protect the reason for it, was to protect traditional Jews from the influences of the reformers or the forced reformation. It failed to protect traditional Jews from the 19th century threat of secularization, which affected Jews everywhere. It did not help reformists solidify their view of Judaism. What it did do is it weakened the Hungarian Jewish community and created unnecessary splits among Jews. So it was really of no value. And if anything, it was counterproductive. Um, the, the decisions of German and um, Russian Jewry not to create such a, such a schism, um, not to create that split, um, probably helped them continue and survive. The splits in the United States um, is ultimately a myth. Um, there never was an American Jewish community. There was never a unified Jewish community. There's never an organized Jewish community. There was never a split. We simply are a patchwork of synagogue associations that is roughly split along theological differences, but it's a complex patchwork of synagogue associations. Ultimately, most Jews today don't care for those differences. And, the, and, and for whatever reason, this myth was created and continues to be expressed and continues to be pushed. Um, The impression of this split only creates unnecessary division among our people. There's no reason for it. Today, American Jewry is struggling for its future in a way that very few Jewish communities have had to face in the past. Today, we face a threat of assimilation. We're the largest Jewish community in the world, Um, and one of the largest Jewish communities ever in history, but we're assimilating very fast due to a lack of Jewish involvement and a lack of Jewish knowledge. We have failed over multiple generations to educate the next generation of Jews in Judaism and to give Jews a strong sense of Jewish identity. And as a result, we're facing a very... as As a result, we're facing a very great threat of assimilation. Um... Pushing differences among Jews and pushing different branches in Judaism and as if there are different Jewish communities, as if such a thing exists, only helps weaken Jews and only helps further Jewish assimilation. Our ultimate, our response has to be to recognize that we Jews are a people. Um, Unlike Christianity, which is where it comes from, where your religious identity is a matter of your belief and practice. If you're a Baptist, that means you believe in Baptist Christianity. If you're a, if you are a, um, 
If you are a Lutheran, you believe in or you practice, you're involved in Lutheran Christianity. You leave your Lutheran church, you're no longer a Lutheran. That's how Christianity works. Judaism, you're not Jewish because of your synagogue membership. You're not Jewish because of your belief or because of your practice. Judaism is a people. We are ultimately a people. We're a people that have a religion together. We may have disagreements about that religion. We may have disagreements about exactly what, exactly what Judaism should look like, but we are ultimately a people. And our peoplehood remains regardless of our beliefs or practice. Even people that are, you could be an agnostic Jew, you're still Jewish. So Jewish practice might be part of identity of our, as Jews, but that identity stands above of practice and what we believe and what we do. And so therefore for today, it's important to know this history, which is why I, um, this is a class that I believe is very, very important. It's important to know this history, to understand how these splits happened, um, to understand um, the realities of the Jewish community today, and recognize that we remain a single disorganized people in this country. We are a single Jewish people, though not united and never united, never organized into a single community. And recognizing that, and we each um, express ourselves in our own ways because we have that freedom of religion that we were given in this country, um, total freedom to express ourselves however we want. And recognizing that our goal has to be overall as Jews to counter Jewish assimilation. And the greatest way to do that is through Jewish education. So as I mentioned last week, I'm going to do one more plug this week. Um, I know June's a hard month. I know a lot of people told me they want to be here, but um, everyone's going to graduate to graduations. But um, let's um, continue to help spread Jewish education, bring people to Jewish classes, um, reach out to your friends, invite them to come. Next week we are going. Next week we are going to talk about. Oh, I forget. Um, next week we're going to talk about the secret of the red cow, the para aduma. That is next week's topic. And um, thank you again, Don, for sponsoring this class. I'm just going to finish off, and I'm going to take a question in a minute. Um, just to finish off, um, this coming Shabbat, this coming Saturday,